Hello, people of the world. My name is Lucas Ginello, and this is the first episode of the Vespa Capital podcast, where we find the smartest investors, entrepreneurs, fund managers, and traders, and have them share their experience and wisdom, which you can use to become better at managing money. This first episode is part one of a three-part series we'll be doing with a very smart guy by the name of Chris McIntosh. Chris is a man who we have a lot of respect for after years of reading his stuff on Zero Hedge and listening to his podcast via his blog, Capitalist Exploits, for which he's best known. These days, Chris would be best described as a macro investor, but he's seemingly done it all from working at the biggest investment banks to starting and running multiple businesses to becoming a property mogul to becoming a venture capitalist internationally. He's an all-round investor in the true sense of the word and the perfect guest for us to kick off the Vespa Capital podcast with. This first episode with Chris is dedicated to his formative years and in it we talk about a wide array of things like time he spent working at investment banks, the lessons from being very successful by accident in trading, how he got into arbitraging the London rental market, what he did when he realised he needed to achieve above 20% on his capital each year just to keep the lights on, what one question every investor should ask themselves at the start of every day and a whole bunch of interesting little nuggets that I'm pretty sure everyone can learn something from. So without any further ado, here's part one of our three-part series on Chris McIntosh. First of all, uh, Chris, I really appreciate your time. It's a a real honour to be speaking with you after following your musings for quite a while. So thank you very much for being here. It's Um, a pleasure to be here, Lucas. Now let's, uh, let's jump straight in. So you cover a lot of goings on in the markets with um, capitalist exploits. Um, I see that Zero Hedge basically publishes everything that you put out. Um, your Q&A sessions with your audiences are really, really good for, for people kind of wanting to, to understand more about your ethos and worldview. And your podcast is, is actually one of the few I subscribe to and actually make the time to listen to uh, when a new episode comes out. Um, so. Instead of sticking to market analysis today, because that can get tedious, I thought we could talk about uh, more about the man behind the podcast and your journey as an investor and, and how that's uh, shaped your worldview. So for the benefit of people who, who haven't heard your story, would you uh, like to give us a brief background into who is Chris McIntosh and where did he come from? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's not something that I normally sort of make all that public. I've been trying to um, put it out there per se. I'm normally being somebody trying to find information as opposed to, uh, and then sharing that information as opposed to sort of um, uh, putting it out there from a marketing perspective. I'm probably the world's shittiest marketer, and so <laughs> I normally try to do it. But to to answer your question, Lucas, I grew up in um, a couple of countries: South Africa, um, Zimbabwe, and a little bit of time in Wales. And I became interested in um, uh, not necessarily finance, but really more how the world works um, from a fairly young age in my early teens. I actually thought that I wanted to study law, and I blame John Grisham for that, which I started reading his books at, I think it was about age 15, 16. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, when I left school, I went to, I went to study law um, correspondence at nights because I was fortunate to be the son of broke parents, and so when I was out of school, I was that was I was on my own to um, navigate the world. And I moved over to London, um, where a couple of things I could do. <clears throat> the currency exchange rate was 
extremely favourable. So I could pay my my student dues in um, less than a week, I think it was, uh, for um, a semester's dues, which was um, it had been a problem back in South Africa where the only way that I could actually get um, to funding my studies was to actually take out loans. And the, ways that, the way that loans worked there was that they were repayable just like any other interest-bearing loan on, say, a mortgage. Mm. In other words, mm. they didn't, you didn't capitalise them to the end of your, um, your degree or whatever it is that you were studying. So that meant that you had to, you know, you had to work, which, which I tried for a very, very short period of time to do. But at interest rates that exceeded twenty percent, it was um, it was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So long story short, I landed, I ended up in London, um, and I was very very fortunate, Lucas, in that at the time it was the uh, mid to late nineties, and it was the beginnings of the dot com boom. <clears throat> um, I found work in investment banks where I basically worked my tail off, made a good impression with um, a number of people and worked my way up there, while, again, while still studying at night. So literally didn't really have a life. Um, I would work 80, 90-hour work weeks at the banks and then I would go home and study until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, get up and do it all over again. Um, and for how long was this? Not a few years? Yes, I was there for, um, what would it have been, about six, seven years. During that period, I became quite interested. I became very, very interested in um, uh, in investment markets. I was working in um, fund management and with a lot of the fund managers and traders. So that that became um, kind of my that was my world. Um, again, if you're spending that much time on it, then that's it's it's hard for it not to be your world. And during that process, I started taking the small amounts of capital that I had, which I was saving and trading it, I landed up being extremely successful. Um, I would say lucky. Um, I actually wrote an article about this, how I traded oil, and I literally bottom-ticked the market and bought a lot of leaps. Oh, amazing. I was just going to ask you which asset, asset class you were talking about. So this was yeah. so you were working in commodities in, in the investment? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. But I was studying that on lunchtime break kind of things. I was interested in mm-hmm. that market. I, there was a trader that I, um, I was friendly with, and we were discussing. It wasn't necessarily commodity markets. It was kind of, it actually began off with interest rates and we're looking at the sectors that were getting affected by um, changes in capital allocations due to interest rates. Anyway, it was a kind of long story, but we came across oil um, as, as this asset class that didn't make a whole lot of sense to us at the time. Anyways, long story short, I, I bought a whole lot of long-dated call options, bottom ticked the market, and, and it just it literally turned around and it, it just went straight up. Um, so I made a lot of money on that, and then I turned around and vaporized a lot, as you do. Right? Yeah, I was, was going to say. <laughs> um, because obviously I was a genius. And I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I knew everything that needed to be known, and Soros didn't have anything on me. Um, and so, so, you know, that, that old process of making money uh, and then progressively losing it over a number of very, very stupid ill-thought trades as well as I actually took 50% of the capital and I placed it into a fund which was buying into IPOs. So it was, it was far down that risk spectrum of mm. investment asset classes. But at the time, I didn't really understand it. You know, mm. 
Um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't understand risk minimization. I didn't understand asset allocation. I didn't understand necessary global trends. It was all just, um, it was, it was like these pieces of a puzzle that were just raining down on me. And I was picking up a few of them and putting together a few as, as I was going, figuring things out. And the best way to learn is to dive into the swimming pool. Um, so that was my figuring out how to swim process. And then, um, from that, I saw an opportunity within the London market on the entre- on sort of entrepreneurial side to arbitrage long-term leases, again, short-term leases, okay. um, basically leasing out large Edwardian properties to uh, people that were looking for a short-term lease, um, antipodeans, if you will. So you're Australian, you'd understand. Yeah, you go to Earl's Court, you rent a place. Yeah, most of the people will go over there for maybe a year. I think it's maybe two, Mm. a year or two, depending on what the visa situation is now. The difference between the long-term lease and the short-term lease was significant to the extent that I could take those long-term leases and because of the supply, sorry, because of the demand, I could be filled on renting out bedrooms, for example, mm-hmm. within weeks, there was very, very little downtime. And um, when I set it up properly, I had a consistent stream of demand. <clears throat> so the demands that had been taken care of, my downtime um, in terms of rentals was extremely low. And I was just, I was just arbitraging the difference. Um, so that worked well. And it was kind of my first foray into the sort of entrepreneurial space, but it was yeah. still based on looking at markets and looking at arbitrage opportunities, right? Whether it be mm-hmm. oil contracts, copper, um, IPOs, whatever, it's, a, it's all machinations of the same thing. So that was, um, that was what I did then. Um, as things progressed, I realized that I didn't want to be a corporate guy. Um, I just I wasn't psychologically set up for it. Um, I don't like taking orders. I worked at a number of the large investment banks, all the names that people would be very familiar with, Lehman's, JPM, and so on and so forth. And, and that culture is, um, is not one that I particularly liked. I liked the work. I liked the incredible stimulation within that work but i didn't really like the people all that much to be honest yeah um, i guess you know you're in it for different reasons probably i was in it to learn and, and to yeah, yeah. um to try and understand the world better mm. and um so long story short i wanted to get out of that i also didn't want to live in a city and so i left i left london spent a lot of time traveling around the world with my current girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and we landed up in what is i think the best country in the world which is where i'm at now at least it is for what it is that i'm trying to achieve which is new zealand and i traded my capital um for that time because i I didn't want or need a job well i needed a job actually i needed income i wasn't wealthy enough to not have to do that so i traded mm. my capital 
but I didn't have a lot of capital. So I needed to, I basically needed to knock out in excess of 20% ROI to keep, okay. keep the lights on. And yeah. I managed to do that. I managed to get over 35% ROI, but I hated the stress and I hated the risk um, with that because I was... You're talking about day trading? I, was, I wasn't day trading per se. I mean, I, yes, I would trade um, in and out within days, but I would hold positions over weeks, um, as, as long as weeks, um, not typically months. But, um, yeah, very, very stressful. And mm. Always looking at what, what's going on. Yeah, I was very good at it, but I, I wasn't a very nice person to be around. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. And so, um, and while I was doing that, I saw another opportunity in, um, uh, in the real estate market. And so I built, I built a real estate investment company, um, which I managed to make about 60, 60 times my capital over about a three and a half year time frame. And that was not bad. That, that, that was, yeah, that worked out very well. While I was doing that, I was still spending quite a lot of time on, on understanding the sort of global macro environment and I was still placing capital into um, various different asset classes, but I wasn't active in the respect that it had been in terms of trading. So that sort of, that trading um, uh, framework that I'd been using, uh, mm-hmm. I've I sidelined and I just, everything got stretched out in terms of time frame, in terms of risk, um, decreasing all of my risk, um, no leverage or very, very little leverage depending on what I was doing and spending a lot more time on the real estate side of things. So that, um, and then that culminated with a yield collapse in that when I was buying stuff at sort of 12 to 14% gross yields, we went down to about 3 to 4%. So that's mm-hmm. the asset appreciation but i couldn't find anything else to buy quite frankly mm. and things didn't make any sense to me that the the, uh, the incomes relative to asset values just didn't make any sense to me and they still don't right <laughs> um, but that was that that was that was that kind of um turning point so i had years before i um uh, i had a mentor um and a friend who was a broker at a very well-known commodity broker over in California. He's since left the firm and he just manages his own money. And um, and he always said to me, if you wake up in the morning and you look at your portfolio and you were to buy any of the assets in your portfolio, that's what you need to think about every day. So you wake up, you look at something and you say, would I buy that? And if the answer is yes, then you hold it. Right? It's already in your portfolio. And if you question them, you say, no, I don't think I would buy that today, then you have to ask yourself the question, why are you owning it? And that's quite yeah. a different mindset. Was what you, human nature is such that we sit, with, like collecting things, right? we sit with the status quo. You own something and you go, oh, well, you know, I bought it at a good price and, um, you know, so I've made money. And then yeah, you start justifying it or rationalizing you justify it. holding it. Um, as in that, and that's not necessarily the best way to actually value a business because if you weren't going to, each day you, what you're doing is you're actually buying it. By keeping your capital in it, you're buying it. You yeah, you're, you're, yes. you're long, right? You're, yeah, you're long because well, it's, a, it's a very interesting kind of simple way of looking at it. Mm. So, 
So I'm trying to do that. I try to do that regularly. And and when I looked at my real estate portfolio, I realized, would I buy this today? And I just, I had to say, no, I wouldn't. There's just no ways that I'd buy this. So, um, so I capitalized a lot. Um, within about three months, I liquidated an entire portfolio, just closed the business down, everything. Just did, that feel, did it feel really good doing that? It did. Um, I mean, I, I built it intelligently, so it wasn't managed. It wasn't taking a lot of my time. Everything was managed. Everything was, you know, I, I was really just looking at numbers on my balance sheet and income mm. statements, um, managing managers of 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 the assets. But it wasn't, you know, look at the time, Lucas. I was on that. I was probably working two days a week. Um, okay. And then the balance of the time I was spending understanding the sort of global macro environment and playing with my kids on the beach. So, um, so it wasn't something that felt good in the respect that I was like, oh, I'm out of that and, and, and I'm not spending time on it and it was stressful. It wasn't that. It, was, it felt good sort of intellectually in that um, I hadn't realized the risk that I was taking to a certain extent. Right. Right. Until you ask yourself that question of would I own this today? And if you realize that you wouldn't purchase it today, you are taking that risk by holding it because you're doing the same thing. And when I looked at it like that, I was like, I'm taking a lot of risk. My leverage ratio was way, way down. I'd liquidated a number of assets as I was buying and selling so that I had very low debt. My LVR was under 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and strong cash flow. So, like, I mean, the market could have crashed and I wouldn't have been affected mm-hmm. in cash flows. My, my cash flow statement would have been just as good, right? But my balance sheet would have looked terrible. Um, and so then you ask yourself the question, could I place the capital um, somewhere else? And during, so during that process, just to kind of um, finish it off, I'll try and make it as quick as I can. <laughs> for all people, but um, during that process, I, I'd identified that there, there would be a shift of capital in the markets from the public uh, public markets into the private. Right. It was regulations. It was relative value, um, and so I wanted to participate in that. And I started doing that via essentially angel investments, looking around the world at various asset classes. Of mm-hmm. uh, in my travels, I'd spent a lot of time. Um, looking at various countries and meeting a lot of interesting people. Um, so I started reaching back out to that network and going and looking at interesting assets and small companies and investing in them. So that was done on really more like angel investing, you know, where you're putting in oh, 20000 50000 bucks into deals that the market cap of the company might only be a million dollars. Yeah, no, well, my first question about that whole thing is, uh, you know, how do you manage that, especially if it's international, internationally you're talking about? Yeah, so that was all passive, right? It was very okay. passive. Okay. And I was doing it alongside um, friends and colleagues. Right. And, um, but in terms of that structural shift of capital moving into the, into the private space, I wanted, to, I wanted to participate in that in a more intelligent fashion. And so I... Um, came up with an idea of leveraging a group of people 
who were like me, quite frankly, um, where we could bring more capital to the table and thus provide a whole lot more leverage to the actual deal because then I could get board seats. I could get, I could structure the deal, yeah. be much, much more favorable for myself and for anybody coming in with me. And at the time I bumped into another guy who was um, a marketing guy and, um, and he wanted to do that with me. And he said, look, I couldn't market what you're telling me. It sounds great. So, so that was kind of the, the beginnings of, um, of the business, which we started off late 2012, investing into um, early stage venture capital. And, um, and that, then I exited that beginning of this year. I think I was probably about a year too late. I should have gotten out earlier and I tried to change some structure in the business, but for a number of reasons that couldn't take place. But essentially I had kind of a similar situation to that which I had with the real estate where you know yields have gone from 12% to 3% and you're looking around saying, what do I buy? What do I buy? Now, to give you some context, when, when I first started getting into a lot of these early stage deals, and this was sort of 2010, 2011, 2012, even 13, you're uh, trying to compare apples to apples here. Pre-money raises for businesses were around about 5 million bucks. Um, and a comparative business today, you're looking at about 25. So the valuations have gone through the roof mm. on a comparative basis. Um, and the supply has increased as well. Um, yeah. All you need to do is, is um, especially in the US, go and have a look on, you know, actually both West Coast and East Coast. And there's no shortage of some startup that's trying to build an app that's going to make you a better coffee or whatever it happens to be. And it's an idea with a bunch of um, pimply-faced teenagers in a garage who are sporting a $20 million valuation, and they're getting it. But that's a very difficult market environment for me to work in. You know, again, it got to that point where, okay, if I'm not prepared to place my capital into this, then what am I doing? So those are all the liquid. And, and, and look, that's way down the risk spectrum. You're talking about the portion of your portfolio, depending on your risk profile and your age and your... Um, uh, a ton of other different metrics. You're probably looking at five to ten percent of your of your nav that mm. you've been placing into that stuff. So all well and good because it's illiquid. You're going to get liquidity at some point from maybe three years to ten. To, it just you know it depends on how early the particular investment is. But the point is, it's very far down the risk spectrum anyway. And if you look at what's going on today, you're not getting paid to take that risk in the same way. No, no. Um, no which is all, all part and parcel of central bank policy and how it's, how it's forced investors further and further down the risk curve. You know, we've seen it in the bond market, Lucas, whereby investors, so corporate debt, for example, is at all-time highs. Emerging market debt, and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, is at all-time highs. And if you look at the emerging markets, you've got bond issuance this year for 2016 is like triple what it was last year. And it's all taken up. And it's all taken up at the lowest yields in history. And if I look at the fundamentals of, the, um, of those bond um, issues, 
they're actually worse than they were if we go back um, 10, 15 years ago. The fundamentals are actually worse, and yet the yields are lower, and there's insatiable demand for them. And the reason that that is the case is because investors have been struggling to find any decent yield in this yield-style yeah, environment. Yeah, so, their money, right? Uh, yeah, and so you get pushed further and further down the risk curve in order to find yield. Anyway, so I'll just quickly close up on the venture capital side of things. So sure. I, I, I left that business. I um, literally handed over to my uh, the business partner that I had at the time. So it's all yours. I can't do this anymore. And so um, my focus is on, to a large extent, passive investments into um, sort of deep value. Again, I don't have to do a whole lot in that space. Um, where I don't want to be risking capital. And then focusing, my, my core focus has been on looking for asymmetry in the markets, which incidentally, there is very little shortage of. There is short, no shortage of it because of the mispricing of assets due to yeah. policy. So, yeah. um, so that's really where my focus is on. And it's looking across asset classes globally to identify things that are quite literally out of whack. And that doesn't mean that I can make money on them necessarily. It just means that on a probability scale, they will revert to the mean at some point. So if you take, say, 10 different strategies across asset classes, which are really, really mispriced, you basically land up with a portfolio structure, which is actually not dissimilar to how venture capital works. So a lot of venture capital guys will invest in, say, 10 deals with the anticipation that one of those deals will be 50, 100x deal, right? And the others will, you know, maybe three or four of them will do okay, and the others will blow away and, and go bankrupt. Um, and then I'm looking for trigger points that can... Um, that can turn those markets and, and then press the trade on them. That was part one of our three-part series with Chris McIntosh of Capitalist Exploits. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Chris's journey as an investor. If you have any questions for Chris, you can get in touch with us and we'll put them to him. Just hit us up via Twitter at VesperCap. Now, listeners can and should subscribe to Capitalist Exploits, various content, which can be found at capitalistexploits.at or just search for Capitalist Exploits in your favorite search engine. I recommend Chris's podcast, which is an amazing education in the sorts of things we've been discussing today, and his books, which can be downloaded for free on the site. Say hello to him on Twitter also, at Capitalist Exp. Finally, anything that we've made reference to in this interview should be available in the show notes but if it's not just get in touch with us again at vespercap on twitter or go to vespa.capital and get in touch there thanks for listening